1: To Restoration Radio, I am your host, St. Heiner, and today we are covering the, the legacy of Joseph Ratzinger. We are joined today by His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn of Most Holy Trinity Seminary. Thank you for joining us, Your Excellency. Yes, thank you for having me. And we're also joined by Father Anthony Cicotta, uh, St. Gertrude the Great, Catholic Church in Ohio. Thank you for joining Thanks, us, Father. Stephen. Uh, to be Father, here. today. Thank you. Father Today has just launched a new site because Father apparently has lots of free time on his hands, which he doesn't actually. (laughs) But he's just put together a site that aggregates all of the different work that St. Gertrude is doing. And you can find that um, at sggresources.org. And I'll mention that again later in the show. So today we're going to be talking about The years from, 19 well, let's say anywhere from 1960, the the Council, and probably a little bit before the Council, leading up to 2005, which was the last conclave. And we're going to try to look at the proposition that all Novus Ordo Catholics bought into. I certainly did at the time that uh, Joseph Ratzinger was this great conservative. I remember being a teenage Novus Ordo Catholic and looking to Cardinal Ratzinger as the real hard line, and that if only people could be like Cardinal Ratzinger, then the church would be saved. And for anyone who's continued to do their own research or look at this topic a bit more, they're going to find out that that's not only far from the truth, but it's probably completely the opposite. So um, for those of you who don't know our guest, His Excellency um, was ordained by Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre in 1975. Is that correct, Your Excellency? Yes. And was consecrated a bishop uh, in 2002 uh, by uh, His Excellency Bishop Robert McKenna. Um, Father Chikada was uh, ordained in 1977, I think. Is that right? That's Father? correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he is yet to be consecrated a bishop because he's busy doing other things. <laughs> uh, so we'll uh, we'll start, Father. I think we were talking a little bit about the pre-show about some of how Ratzinger got started, um, let's say, intellectually, what his roots were. Can you, can you start us by speaking a bit about that?
2: Uh, sure. It's important to understand his, his background, particularly because so many people have the idea, as uh, you, know, you did, that he was a, a great conservative or a great traditionalist. Uh, actually, his uh, intellectual background comes out of um, modernism, ultimately, uh, he was a he was uh, educated in uh, uh, Germany after the Second World War, and his professors were followers of a, a movement called uh, La Nouvelle Theologie, the the New Theology, and the idea uh, behind the New Theology was to reject standard Catholic theology, which was expressed in uh, Thomism and neo-scholasticism, and to come up with something else more in accord with the ideas of the modern world and uh, modern philosophy. So he was very influenced by this thinking. And uh, if uh, you look back at his uh, record, you see that the uh, professors he was interested, uh, he was uh, educated by, were very much uh, rooted in this, uh, rooted in this as well. So he came to a point where he uh, rejected what he called the rigid neo-scholastic Thomism, and bought into this new theology.
3: Yeah, this is a time also when the new theology had tremendous impetus after World War II. Uh, the late 1940s, it, it uh, blossomed and flourished in, in all of the Catholic institutions to a greater or lesser extent, even in the Roman universities. You had uh, people who were uh, avant-garde. Uh, and, uh, uh, for example, uh, John Paul II's thesis uh, in the Angelicum was rejected uh, by Gary Goulagrange, who was the, the primary... And best representative of the old scholasticism and uh and he rejected it as as modernist uh there's a, another example of it uh, it's all the same period the post war theological period, so people should understand that that these are both of these men were products of the same time uh, and you had the upsurge of Teilhard de chardin and various other uh perhaps lesser well known uh people. Uh, theologians, as they're called, uh, coming up at this time. It was just their moment. Also, there was tremendous upsurge of the liturgical movement, the modernist liturgical movement. 1948 is the establishment of the commission by Pius XII to reform the liturgy, with none other uh, at its head than Bonini, who we found out to
2: be, you know, just the the monster uh, of liturgical reforms. <clears throat> Sure. So uh, the um, this was these ideas were very, very much uh, in the air. Now, if you hear the term modernism in uh, connection with uh, the theology during this period, uh, you tend to think that it's uh, something. It's a term that's applied by uh, conspiracy-minded trads such as yours, truly. But uh, when you actually look at uh, some of the, the later writings that have, have come out recently about this new school of theology, you see that uh, those who are in favor of it very much uh, draw uh, the uh, parallel between modernism and this new theology as as uh, one movement. In fact, there's a, a book on the new theology by a Belgian named Jurgen Metpenningen, who speaks of the movement of the New Theology as the inheritors of modernism and as the precursors of Vatican II. And uh, so this was the, the uh, climate of uh, intellectual modernist theological ferment that uh, Ratzinger came out of. And Well...
1: And His Excellency mentioned the, the this thesis of John Paul II, but I think also the, the thesis of uh, Ratzinger at the time also got him into trouble.
2: Uh, yes, it did. Uh, his um, in Germany uh, apparently to teach at a university you have to uh, do f- two theses. One is is your regular doctoral thesis, and then uh, the second thesis. Is uh, thesis that you have to do is uh, the one that qualifies you to teach as a uh, professor. So uh, Ratzinger did one on on Saint Bonaventure. The uh, man who was his uh, or one of the men who was his his mentor, Father Leppel, uh, gave a series of recollections about Ratzinger as a student, and of course, naturally, had high praise for him. Leppel recounted that uh, Ratzinger's thesis, uh, in fact, ran into trouble uh, because uh, some of the, the auditors and the examiners thought that, that what he was uh, proposing was uh, something that was essentially modernist. So in the first review of the thesis by the uh, uh, dogmatist, uh, dogmatic theologian Father Schmauz, uh, Ratzinger Uh, One of the comments was that Ratziger, uh, in the first part of it, was essentially teaching uh, uh, some ideas that were modernist. So what he did is uh, Ratziger went back and he did away with the first part of the thesis and submitted the second part of the thesis uh, for an examination. But when the time came for his examination, the public examination, and the questioning, uh, there was a a, a dispute over Ratzinger's idea of the truth, Uh, and this uh, dogmatic theologian, Schmaus, asked uh, Ratzinger, more or less, if according to him the truth was something static and changeless, or something historical dynamic, and he couldn't get Ratzinger to answer. So he he fell, in, fell into a dispute with one of the other uh, theologians there, and uh, the question was never really answered.
1: So he was so, probably still out at sea at that time. He hadn't developed a substantial anchorage. Oh, idea. no,
3: no. He, he was definitely anchored. Uh, that's in his book, Introduction to Christianity, that whole thing about truth. He, he speaks about the scholastic idea of truth, and, of course, discards it, and he uh, talks about the modern uh the view of truth in modern philosophy and he cites particularly Vico, who was a seventeenth century Italian modern philosopher, uh, who said that uh, truth is uh necessarily attached to action, that you something is true for the modern man only if it is accomplished and done by him, and therefore it takes truth out of the the realm of the objective and what is, to the uh, realm of of action. This is typical of the modernists. This was Blondel as well at the turn of the century, that something is not true
2: unless you put it into action. Yeah, uh, that's probably, probably why you get uh, all of the uh, language at this time that talks all the t- uh, in the modernist theological circles, it speaks about salvation history, mm-hmm. because there's this this uh, idea all the time of, of, uh, uh, of action. Yes, uh, yes, so uh, that's uh, definitely, Ratzinger
3: was just submerging, as the modernists always did when the pressure came.
1: Well, Your Excellency Father, you're talking about, you know, we use the term modernism, and you've talked about the specific meaning behind that, but part of that also relates to the idea of, do I have to say something new in theology to be relevant? And I wondered, you know, before this time we're all theologians just bored, you know, repeating the same things from Trent, well, you know, it's all true, so I don't need to repeat on it. You get this idea from this Nouvelle Théologie that you had to say new things, and only then would you be relevant and worthwhile to read.
3: No, that's not true. There was, uh, among the scholastic theologians, there was a great deal of work to be done. Uh, Many things that had to be researched, for example, whether uh, it was the uh, mediation of Mary uh, of all graces uh, was definable, for example, uh, or uh, the the title of co-redemptrix. Those were things that were being researched by theologians, and, and there was a good deal of controversy about it. Um, many other things that were uh, still left undone. It should not be forgotten that Thomism was really only the property of the Dominicans for many hundreds of years, and that it became the common uh, explanation of theology only after Leo XIII in the latter part of the 19th century. So the the unleashing of scholastic philosophy as the, the philosophy of the Catholic Church uh became only you know a little over a hundred years ago, and uh it was confirmed a great deal by Pius the eleventh who called saint Saint Thomas the doctor communis meaning the common doctor he's not only a Dominican, in other words he's not only a Thomas he is the church's theologian, and so the, this uh, received a great impetus and was attracting great minds there were there were the the, the flourishing of Thomism from 1900 to, uh, let's say, 1960, was uh, a wonderful thing for the Catholic Church and and presented the Catholic Church in in a wonderful light uh, as not only the the bulwark of supernatural truth, but also a a bastion of true philosophy and and giving uh, the true explanation of what is. Uh, And uh, so, no, this was uh, an attempt to it goes way way back it goes back to the 18th century the idea of altering the catholic church to fit the modern world uh... there there has always been a wing of people in the catholic church who wanted to make the catholic church acceptable to modern man and and they had all of these theories about what modern man is as if he had substantially changed from the middle ages or the ancient world and that therefore the Catholic Church could no longer speak in the terms of the Middle Ages to modern men, and, and people would abandon the Church if it if did not speak to men in a modern way, and with modern philosophy. And so these modernists saw themselves as saviors of the Church, and they were uh, dealt with very harshly by St. Pius X, and some were excommunicated, others were destituted of their... Of their offices, uh, but after 1914, when he died, there was a general alleviation of these uh, these ways of dealing with modernists. These measures. Uh, one of the first things that Benedict the Fifteenth did in 1914 was to suppress the Sodalitium Pianum, which was Pius X's arm of information concerning modernists throughout the whole world. Uh, he suppressed that uh... He, he reduced it to to being practically nothing I mean, uh, and it had no power uh... whereas it was an extremely powerful thing under pious and so benedict the fifteenth was elected precisely as an anti pius the tenth party member uh... he was elected to mollify the church's attitude toward the modernists because a lot of prelates felt that he went too hard St. pious the tenth and this Policy of Benedict the was continued under Pius XI and Pius XII, who were not modernists, but who were soft on modernists, and therefore these modernists who had to go underneath the ground under Pius X uh, rose up and, and surfaced and became very numerous after and active, especially after the war and especially under Pius XII's reign. So this idea of going back, uh, of, of speaking to modern man and to, to changing the Church to fit modern man goes back two centuries. You can trace it back. But they got their moment in the softness of Pius XII toward them, and of course they had their triumph in John Twenty Third, who was a modernist. He was one of them. That that's, uh, people should understand that that this is not some you know uh, something that uh, passing fat. This is something that has deep historical roots.
1: Wasn't there that uh, anecdote about uh, upon his election going straight to the Holy Office and pulling his file where it says suspected of modernism?
3: Yes, uh, John the Twenty-third uh, did that, and this that story was told to me personally by Archbishop Lefebvre. And John Twenty-Third told it to Archbishop Lefebvre personally, so it, it has very good connections. Uh, mm. He went to his file in the Holy Office, and it said, Suspect of Modernism. This was put in by Cardinal Delay uh, under Pius X in 1914, uh, early 1914, when John Twenty-Third, then uh, uh, the secretary, uh, no, excuse me, a seminary professor in Bergamo, Italy, a priest, had been summoned to Rome Uh, on the accusation, no doubt from the Sodalitium Pianum, that he was using Duchenne in the teaching of church history, Duchenne, who was on the index. Mm. And he swore to to Cardinal Delay, I do not use Duchenne, I have not even read Duchenne. Now, even his most charitable biographers, uh, including Hebblethwaite, regard this as a lie. (laughs) That, that this, uh, that this uh, you know, just was not true. Uh, and so uh, I'm sure Cardinal Delay, who was very astute, uh, went and put in his file, suspect of modernism, which is a, you know, a very bad. It'd be like saying suspect of murder. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, in the ecclesiastical world, I mean, you're, if you're a suspect, you're, you're in very bad condition. It, you know, it's mm-hmm. much worse than it sounds. And so if John the Twenty-Third laughed it off and said to Archbishop of Fever, he said, imagine me, a modernist, and then laughed.
1: <laughs> I, guess I, I ironic <laughs> laughter,
3: I guess. And but he yes, was the one that said to a, an atheist who was interviewing him, a French atheist, when the name of Pius X came up and the atheist said, St. Pius X, he burst out and said, he's no saint. And the atheist said, "Oh, excuse me, Your Holiness, but it is not I who canonized him."
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: and realizing his mistake, he backed up and said, "Oh, yes, you know, Saint Pius. He, he, he. but his first reaction was he was no saint because Pius was well, certainly, yeah, certainly not the people him.
1: like him. Yeah, absolutely.
3: Uh, and and John the Twenty-Third's personal and close friend in the seminary was Bruniuti." Who was the principal Italian modernist excommunicated vitandus by Saint Pius X, and who died uh, I, um, impenitent in 1943?
1: <laughs>
3: that was, and he was his assistant at his uh, ordination. Buona you
1: <laughs> Well, in Your Excellency, you brought us up to John the Twenty-Third, which takes us up to the Council, and with all of the writing and controversy that. The, the young Joseph Ratzinger, and, and for those of us who are listening, we're obviously not referring to Benedict XVI as Benedict XVI at this time because he was Joseph Ratzinger at the time, Father Joseph Ratzinger. So he, he got the attention of Cardinal Fring and was brought as a peritus, uh, sort of a consulting theologian, to Vatican II where he appeared in, in suit and tie. Which um, was a scandal at the time. Yes. Right. Um, what. That the the, uh, the sort of um, very modern look to the priest that he's going to be a man of the people. Can you talk a little bit uh, about his participation in the council and what his major contributions were? Because we're talking about his legacy, and some of those legacies are unsigned. They are part of some background work.
2: Yes. So he was uh, a paratus, which is to say a, a theological expert, And he accompanied Cardinal Frings. Cardinal Frings was uh, an older man uh, and uh, obviously relied quite a bit on this uh, young theologian who had a a good reputation in the uh, circles in which he worked in Germany. Uh, One of the interesting anecdotes uh, about uh, Frings and Ratzinger is that before the council, the curia the roman curia was charged with coming up with drafts preparatory schema uh, for consideration by the council the uh, these were written very much in in the style of uh, traditional catholic theology traditional catholic dogma very clearly written and were sent out to different uh, bishops who were on the preparatory commission. One of the ones who uh, objected to it was Frings. He uh, wrote back to say that these schema had to be changed, uh, obviously having in mind completely other direction for the theology of of the council. And the schema initially were Uh, written in the language of uh, neo-scholastic Thomist theology, uh, but uh, these were not acceptable to him. And of course, the speculation, it's likely since Frings at that time was an old man, is that uh, Ratzinger, uh, the young theologian himself, was the one who prepared the intervention before Vatican II for Frings.
3: It should also be noted that uh, the German bishops met in Fulda after the uh, early session of Vatican II and came up with a whole set of new schemata to propose if, uh, in the event that the old schemata should be discarded, the Ottaviani schemata. And uh, the author of those Fulda schemata was none other than Karl Rahner, who was a pantheist and a womanizer, uh, a Jesuit priest uh, to boot. And he was the author of those. The German bishops accepted those in Fulda and brought them down to Rome, all set to go, uh, in order to replace Vatican II's uh, um, schemata, or Taviani schemata, the preliminary schemata, with their own. Now, Rahner was the teacher of Ratzinger, Ratzinger is Rahner's altar boy. You have to understand that. He, he learned a great deal, and was very much formed by Rahner. So in that sense, and he was always seen with Rahner at the council. They, it was, uh, it was, uh, they were always together, always working together. So in that sense, Ratzinger very much, through Rahner, hijacked the council. Because what happened was, John XXIII wanted these new schemata to be adopted, and wanted to throw out the Holy Office's schemata. And so he changed the rules. The rules were originally that you needed a two-thirds vote in order to adopt new schemata, and he changed it to a simple majority. The simple majority passed, and the old schemata were thrown out, and the new ones came in. So that was the the beginning of the end of the Council. There's nothing that could be done, because all of these new schemata were rotten to the core.
1: Yes. And we can kind of say we know the story at that point, Your Excellency, not only because we've done that monumental show on the Council where we explored six of all of the documents, but Mm -hmm. we know from from reading about the Council, either Rhine flows into the Tiber or other sources, we know what happened after that. The Liberals took over and eventually won. So... I guess when you when you win, you get to go on to your your next act. And for Joseph Ratzinger, this was accepting a university position. So for him, it's always about it's always been about academics, teaching, writing. He hasn't he hasn't he didn't seek a career in church politics. He wanted to just be an influencer, a a writer, and he went to the university, which is a natural place for that.
3: Uh, just another uh, anecdote from Archbishop Lefebvre, who, of course, was at the council. He said that the left, uh, the, the Rhine people, uh, all of, you know, Ratzinger, Rahner, and all of the theologians and everyone representing that, uh, would every single morning have a mimeographed summary in your mailbox of what happened the day before at the council and what you should think about it. They were very well organized, and they were responsible for the conversion of all of that middle group of bishops, many of the missionary bishops and all, who really didn't know what was going on too much. They, mm. they, they put over the ideas of the council by, they must have worked the whole night to do this, uh, to have them in the mailboxes the next morning, and what you should think. So you know, I have to think that Ratzinger was very much a part of that because he was part
2: of that whole group. That's yes, very it's important. It's it's uh, impressive. It shows the level of the organization and the determination these people had, because even from a te- technical point of view, it was very difficult to get some uh, something copied in those days and to get uh, your ideas spread around. So it was a truly extraordinary effort that they made to. Hijack the council, in effect.
1: Yeah. Well, you're right, Your Excellency. You, 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 uh, some of our younger listeners might have no idea what a mimeograph is. Yes, <laughs>
3: it's a very inky, messy machine that uh, uses. The, well, I,
1: I won't go into it, but
3: it, it, it's you know it was used by dinosaurs.
1: Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was also busy churning out the, the whatever new change you had for the mass, and you'd stick that inside the missile, right? <laughs>
3: yes, yes, <Yeah. laughs> yes. It was in the days of typewriters, so you mm. know, and so uh, that that should give you some idea, you know.
1: <laughs> well, that ge- again, that gets us to our, our post uh, council period, 1966, beyond, and obviously we have a book you've referenced before, Your Excellency, Introduction to Christianity. That's in 1968. In 1969, we also have the, the journal Concil- uh, Communio, which was a sister journal to Concilium, founded with all the usual suspects, von Balthasar, de Lubach, and Cosper. who mm-hmm. were all part of that. Can you talk a little bit about this university period from 1966, let's say, to about 1970, uh, what was happening with these books and what was being said?
2: Well, one interesting anecdote is that, in fact, uh, Ratzinger was appointed uh, to his position because of the influence of Hans Küng. So that should indicate to listeners pretty much where his uh, theological uh, interests at that point uh, lie. Yes, it was also the time in which
3: Ratzinger... Uh, supposedly had his conversion 1968. He was professor at Tubingen, which is just like a professor at Liberal U uh, in in Germany. It had always it was the home of Bauer and Strauss in the 19th century, who were radical rationalists. I mean, it has a horrible history. Tubingen. Now it always had a Catholic faculty. The uh, Bauer and strauss were the were the um, Protestants, part of the Protestant faculty, but nevertheless, it had always a horrid reputation for being uh left wing so of course he 's named there and um and Kung was was uh, associated with tubingen as well and uh then the, as the story goes uh Ratzinger was shocked and appalled by the 1968 uprisings of students. And uh, he then became a conservative. This is, uh, you know, what is put forth by his apologists. that then he became a conservative and broke with Kung and Rahner, who were the more radical. And this, uh, it, it, it is true that he did see that the pursuit of the radicalism of Kung and Rahner was going to go no place. I don't think it had anything to do with the students. But this is where he uh, took on this sort of coating of conservatism whereby he would present himself as uh, Mr. Hermeneutic of continuity that the council and its reforms had to have some connection with the past. That doesn't mean that you would you know, keep the past. It just had to be shown as having a connection to the past, whereas Kung and Rahner were, were just radicals, uh, break with everything. And, and uh, so it goes back to that period, and, and he therefore pursued that and obtained that reputation, all the while retaining all of the modernist theology. He just developed a certain way of speaking and a certain way of presenting his ideas in such a way that uh, they, you know, that he could present it as continuous. You know, we can't throw out entirely the past, the statements I quote. Uh, and quote. Um, and then the whole business in the 1980s of starting to have a conversion toward the traditional mass and starting to criticize the new mass and everything went too fast and... This this was all happening in the 60s. Something happened around that time
1: whereby he saw that the path of radicalism was going nowhere. So would you characterize this as purely opportunistic on his part? He wanted to stay relevant?
3: Not opportunistic personally, but I think it's always the baby. I wrote an article, Saving the Baby. Their baby was Vatican II. Those liberal and modernist theologians obtained more at Vatican II than they expected, and Hans Kung said that. It was a tremendous triumph for them. And they realized that this will never happen again, that we must capitalize on this. If ever it is turned back, it's dead forever. So I think it was part of his strategy of what I would call saving the baby, that if the baby of Vatican II is going to be protected, it has to be seen as a homogeneous, that means a continuous development of Catholicism. It cannot be seen as a break with the past. I think in that sense he was opportunist. He sensed that. It was it was a political idea, but I don't think for personal aggrandizement, no. I don't think you could accuse him of that. I just think he wanted to see this thing happen, uh, and he realized this was the moment.
1: So as you say, this is when he takes on the veneer of conservatism and, and starts that slow march to 1981 – where we see his appointment as the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which is, of course, Vatican II-speak for the Holy Office, because mm-hmm. we don't dare call things by their traditional names, which well, would have made him in the Grand the Rat- Inquisitor.
3: It was always the Holy Office of the Inquisition. <laughs> so that was its original title. It, the, the Of the Inquisition was eventually dropped popularly, but it was always the
2: Holy Office of the Inquisition. One interesting detail on this is uh, on his appointment, is that um, even uh, conservatives like George Weigel pointed out that he was the first uh, head of the Holy Office who really wasn't a follower of St. Thomas Aquinas, and that this this his appointment was really quite a break with uh, quite a break with the past, a non thomas prefect for uh, the Holy Office. Yes, Um, they were always Dominicans who, of course, ran the Inquisition.
1: Sure. Well, uh, this is when he sort of enters our lives, you could say the R being the traditional movement, because we have the 1983 excommunication of Archbishop Took, because those are the only people who need to be excommunicated are traditionalists. Yes, Um, I
3: think he, he did some sort of, I mean, besides the traditionalists, I think there was some sort of wrath that was sent toward a bunch of nuns or something that decided to be priests. They were they were on a boat in the Danube, and they had an ordination ceremony. I think he did something nasty to them. But uh, but traditionalists definitely got the Inquisition treatment from Ratzinger.
0: The most <laughs> right, the Inquisition people,
2: side, not the CDF side. <laughs> right, right. The most other people tended to get from him was a warning, a monetum. Yeah. I think those ladies got a monitum. yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> So uh, we have the excommunication in 1983, and then we have the broken-down negotiations in 1988. So is this the veneer of conservatism, move to traditionalism at its, at its height, this uh, idea of reconciling the past? and Can we speak to this? If Ratzinger really is a modernist, then why would he care about reconciling the, with the Lefebvre? Or why would he care about the traditional mass?
3: because of that very principle, that they are seeking the stamp of approval of tradition. And Denoya said it explicitly in uh, his original letter, I think it was back in November or something, in the fall anyway, there was a letter of Denoya saying the reconciliation of the Society of St. Pius X would be a way of approving the, uh, the fact that Vatican II is not a break with the past. And if you notice, the, all of the uh, and Bishop Felle even mentioned this that the the overtures are coming from the Vatican inmates of the uh, excuse me the modernist inmates of the Vatican. The, they are not coming from the SSPX. Even recently, uh, uh, there was a uh, uh, an attempt to say, well, you have until Friday, that's the day after tomorrow, to come back. Uh, otherwise, we're going to go after each of the priests and try to reconcile them individually. Uh, maybe they'll
1: send a limo at night with a driver or
3: something you, <laughs> yes. you have to get in the, you
1: have to get in the car now or
3: else <laughs> yes. uh i mean they on the very day or very close to the very day uh that they dumped bishop williamson the vatican started the whole process up again with some preliminary letter it was in the wanderer the end of october they want the approval of tradition because they understand that they, they don't want Vatican II to appear historically as rupture. That is the death of Vatican II if it ever appears historically as rupture. And uh, so you see how they went uh, after uh, that Monsignor, uh, I forget his name, that uh, said essentially it was rupture. (laughs) And uh, they accused him of being a state of a cantist and uh, all sorts of nasty things. Uh, What was the name of that Monsignor, Father? Monsignor Gerardini. Gerardini. I mean, he he had the boldness to say such a thing about Vatican II. And, uh, uh, I mean, he was anathema for that. You're not allowed to say that or think that. The, the thought police were called out, and the, the German shepherds
2: and all were sent uh, to, to suppress that idea. They. Want... He was also. Uh, he was a canon of St. Peter's Basilica, by the way. Yes. So. Uh,
3: no, he he got you know, uh, uh, and his his disciple uh, wrote a book. Uh, Saying some very uh, critical things about Vatican II, and he was given some award for it, and the head of the awarding commission resigned rather than to give this award, you know, to be responsible for giving this award to this uh, this author, this Italian author. I forget his name too. But uh, you know, the the idea that Vatican II is not is not continuous and homogeneous with the past is anathema to the modernists. And so, vice versa, the idea of attracting the—if we can get Lefebvre in his successors to nod to Vatican II, that's a wonderful thing. Then the only thing left is the detritus in their view of the Hmm. Well, and when this this
1: 1988 uh, collapse happened, I I sort of perceived this movement to a middle ground, and that's where, as I was coming up as a as a young teenage. Catholic I got familiar with the reform of the reform the Ratzinger report all of these things that built his reputation in the 90s as this hardcore conservative and everyone looked to him and said ah because by that time the ground had shifted so much it's very much like the French revolution where the right wing becomes uh, over the you know over time the left wing becomes regarded as the right wing because the ground has shifted so much by so by this time relatively speaking Ratzinger might have been seen as some kind of conservative do you still expect that do you still accept that characterization
2: well well obviously not yeah. no uh it, it's uh and you're
1: correct it is at this
2: point that he uh starts i guess to become um more of a household name uh, among uh catholics and, and you start to read uh, more and more about him in in uh, different papers And there is the great number of books and interviews that he produced. And it's at this point that he, Ratzinger, becomes a focal point for what we would call conservatives, people who are maybe a little bit nervous about some of the changes of Vatican II and the way that everything is heading. And he starts to look as the great theological hope, uh, let me add
3: this, too, that Catholicism does not know liberal or conservative. The, in the view of modernism, he is conservative in the sense he's a conservative modernist to the extent that he sees that a certain amount of breaking needs to be applied as the you know Cadillac goes down the cliff. Uh, so that it doesn 't totally crash and burn by the time it reaches the bottom, is that that it should go a little bit slowly in its in its gradual progress uh, and uh, so you know the idea of a conservative we i grew up there was no such thing as a conservative when I was a child. You were a Catholic, the pope was Catholic, and the pastor of your church was Catholic. Catholicism does not admit that. So when you say the very word conservative, you are admitting the legitimacy of the liberal and the radical.
4: Mm-hmm. It
3: means that they are all within the same pen, and you know we're just uh, we just are on different sides. Or, or you know it's all legitimate. Uh, it's something like politics. You know there's there's two sides of the same House of Representatives. Which side you sit on. You know uh, it, this is something alien to Roman Catholicism uh it it, it is uh, so you know to say well he's a conservative he yes he's a conservative modernist i'd give him that he's a modernist so he's a heretic <laughs> but he's a conservative
2: one
1: well as you say to your earlier point i guess that's like a conservative murderer <laughs> yes. uh so doesn't use as many knives or something like that yes
3: you know is it, just uh you know more surgical let's say <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh,
3: the uh, it, you know, but if well, for example, Hans Kung would be on the other side. Hans Kung, by the way, is still a priest in good standing. He was taken off the list of the Catholic uh, faculty at Tubingen that he was not a Catholic theologian. That's all that was done. He is a priest in good standing. Yet Archbishop Lefebvre was excommunicated. Archbishop Tuck was excommunicated. The, the priests of the Society of St. Pius X are all illegitimate priests in their, in their view. Uh, priests that don't have the right to function, and their bishops don't have the right to function. But Hans Kung, who is a public heretic, I heard him on television say, the assumption is an assumption. So he publicly denied one of the dogmas of the Catholic Church. He is a priest in good standing. That tells you something about the Novus Ordo. That this is a a, a a a modernist regime that sees heresy as a legitimate thing as long as you play ball according to the rules.
1: Well, better than good standing. After after the the, the conclave, he was uh, invited to dine at the Vatican as a yeah, guest. Yeah, he had a beer with Ratzinger. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, it shows well, they're old get... friends.
3: That If you could, you know, I don't think. Uh, I mean, I certainly wouldn't be invited in to have a beer with Ratzinger. Let's put it that way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you'd be bringing you'd be bringing wine anyway. You're actually. Yes, yeah, I think here. so. Yeah. So. <laughs> so we get we we have the '90s of this household name spreading of uh, the reform of the reform idea that you know well. We the Novus Ordo was fine. It was just the interpretation and, and the whole canard of the spirit of Vatican II, et cetera. Then we get to the 2000s before the conclave, and we have uh, several documents that come out which are very revelatory. And again, going back to the legacy of, of Ratzinger, I, there's probably a, a, a triangle of things to talk about here, Your Excellency and Father. We've got the Joint Declaration on Justification with the Lutherans. We have Dominus Jesus. Um, we have the, the document on, on the Jews in 2001. We have all of that. that all, all of those things tie together with his ecclesiology, and could both of you speak to that, or any aspects of that that you'd like to talk about?
3: Uh, Well, certainly one of the big factors of the legacy, one of the big contributions, uh, I put that in quotation marks, of Ratzinger, is the ecclesiology. He is a, a nut about the new ecclesiology he was very involved in Lumen Gentium which uh, promulgated the new ecclesiology this has been uh, very much on his mind and he has made it the new the new theology he ha- he has transformed the very notion of the catholic church uh, successfully by doing that over the years uh and uh so that that should be said that's one of the biggest contributions and i always use that you know, of ratzinger To the destruction of the Catholic Church.
2: Yes, and uh, biographers say that it was the Vatican II's declaration or revelation and then declarations on the church that uh, Ratzinger and Rahner worked on together. So, this is, uh, I mean, if you want to talk about their baby, this is really their baby. Yeah. And biographers of Ratzinger as well say that this, um, his ideas on ecclesiology and his uh, ideas on uh, a different concept of the church, actually go back to De Lubach and his his book on Catholicism. So this, uh, once again, you can see this sort of continuous, um, this uh, continuity, as it were, with liberalism and modernism. De Lubac, by the way, was cited by the Holy Office for error, Um,
3: and uh, he was rehabilitated later by the modern. He was made a cardinal by J.P. II, by John Paul II. But in 1950, I think it was, or thereabouts, he he was, and also the Humani Generis encyclical was uh, against De Lubac. That was one of the uh, preoccupations of Pius XII to condemn his doctrine. Unfortunately, yes. he didn't go far enough with Zolubak, but uh, that's another story. But uh, he, you know, Zolubak was the the liberal, the modernist on on the nature
2: of the Catholic Church, uh, and uh, Ratzinger picked up on it. It's very interesting to note too that uh, early on, or early on in the um, liturgical movement that it was recognized that many of the adepts of the liturgical movement in the 30s and 40s uh, had a strange idea of the Church, strange notion of the Church. In yeah. fact, in a, a document in, in 1947 that Archbishop Grober, uh, one of the German bishops, uh, put out about the errors of the liturgical movement, one of the things that he specifically... Uh, Mentions in there is that uh, these people follow a uh, new and a different idea uh, of the church that is essentially a modernist idea. So uh, people were be- becoming becoming aware of that, and the uh, encyclical of, of uh, Pius the Twelfth, Humani Generis, was. Uh, Directed at uh, uh, this idea, and uh, a number of his pronouncements on the church as well were directed against these uh, false ideas false concepts of the church that were being spread by modernists at that time so it's, it's uh, again there 's this this uh, continuity as it were with with uh, uh, modernism uh, that you see that some recognized in those days and tried to stop, but were not successful in doing. See, the key for the modernists was to divorce
3: the Catholic Church from the Church of Christ. They wanted to absolutely do away with the idea that the Church of Christ was essentially associated with the structure of the Catholic Church, that the Church was founded by Christ as a hierarchical institution, With Pope and bishops, and that uh, in order to be Christian, uh, that is Catholic, you had to belong to this church and be submitted to your bishop, and that uh, if through heresy or schism uh, you were excommunicated or separated from the church, uh, you were completely out and had no hope of salvation. Uh, that, That had to be destroyed, and the uh, the various ways in which they destroyed it was an attempt to alter the true doctrine of the mystical body uh, which is found in Saint Paul uh, into a, a type of um, uh, invisible bond between all Christians, all the baptized and uh, and then the the uh, ratzinger 's favorite uh, was the church as communion, which is the same thing. Uh, he says that the church starts in us, and then we build it, See, which is typically Protestant. He well, is a modernist that, uh, where, who believes that the beginning of Revelation is inside of each person, and this encounter with Christ it begins with each person, and it's a movement of piety and faith in each person. Then the church is built from that, and so the structures of the church are the effect of Communion. Uh, it is not communion, which is the effect of the structures of the church, which is the traditional view. So that all had to be torn down uh, in order to do ecumenism and uh, to, to amalgamate uh, all religions into one great religion. Uh, that, all that had to be torn down uh, and to, to you know, have a freedom of thought and to destroy
2: dogmatic unity in the Catholic Church. Because this was
3: their
2: program. One of the the concepts or or the buzzwords that we heard endlessly as we were suffering through the Vatican II changes in the post-Vatican II seminary was the concept of the people of God. And this was something that um, one was suspicious about at the time because of the people who used it. But eventually, on, on uh, reflection, you understand exactly what was going on, that the concept of the people of God was uh, one that the modernists had uh, invented to change, to alter the, the notion of the idea of the church, that you become a member of the uh, people of God through baptism. And uh, thus... Uh, heretics, uh, schismatics, those who are uh, explicitly uh, outside the Catholic Church can still be part of this people of God.
3: Yes, so so it, Ratzinger it, says it explicitly in a speech that he gave. <clears throat> uh, he says, um, speaking of this people of God, mm-hmm. he says, one can then ask if the image of the body meaning the Church, was too restrictive since there manifestly existed in reality intermediate degrees of belonging. The Constitution on the Church found it helpful for this purpose to use the concept of the people of God. It could describe the relationship of non-Catholic Christians to the Church as being in communion and of non-Christians as being ordered to the Church, where in both cases one relies on the idea of people of God. And he mentions uh, gives a reference to Lumen Gentium. So yeah. what Father Chikada is saying is absolutely correct that the modernists were using this as a way of
2: breaking down the walls of the church. And this is this is why um, it uh, is so uh, unrealistic to uh, think of, of uh, Ratzinger's ideas as uh, somehow conservative if you want to use that term, or traditionalist in terms of uh, traditional Catholic doctrine, because it isn't. Uh, if you look, for instance, in the New Catechism, uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, so-called, uh, you see that the uh, section on on uh, the Church begins with this concept of the people of God. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's uh, the key idea for uh, understanding the new ecclesiology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's very very uh, poisonous, but it was created specifically to serve ecumenism.
3: Yes, it it is a heresy. Uh, I did a uh, actually a comparison of the new ecclesiology and the traditional ecclesiology in a three column um piece that I did once, and you should see all of the declarations of popes against this very idea against some sort of invisible church, or where people outside the structures of the Catholic Church can be considered Catholic and, uh, or, or members of the church, and uh, they're very, very clear about the necessity to be submitted to the Roman Catholic hierarchy and to be a member of the Catholic Church
2: Uh, Yeah, uh, those who are interested in that article uh, can find it on traditionalmass.org under articles. Um, The uh, uh, comparison Bishop Sanborn is talking about uh, is called the uh, New Ecclesiology Documentation. Uh, And uh, so that's on traditionalmass.org underneath articles. And uh, under uh, heresies and errors,
1: and I will uh, I will post it here on Twitter in just a moment, so that we'll have a, a link to it up on our Twitter feed. For those of you who are just joining us, uh, you're listening to Restoration Radio. Our guests today are His, Excell- His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn and Father Anthony Chicotta. Our topic is the legacy of Joseph Ratzinger from 1960 to 2005. And there's still some things um, we need to cover, Your Excellency and Father, but what I want to make sure we do now is if we um, have callers who want to call in, that we open up our phone lines. Our telephone number to call is 949-272-9417. Again, that telephone number is 949 949- 2729417 if you want to skip the queue and put your questions in Twitter you're welcome to do that as well Father you referred earlier about uh you know trad conspiracy nuts and one of the things that we hear at least in connection with uh at the time cardinal ratzinger was the suppression of the secret of fátima a third secret do you think that this is something relevant to discuss or um do we, do we feel that sometimes the whole issue of, of Fatima might be a bit too uh, apocalyptic for Catholics?
2: Boy, talk about a, a spiny question. <laughs> um, <laughs> this will make e- the, the uh, phones light up. <laughs> yes, the pho- phones will all light up on, uh, on this one. Well, uh, first of all, the modernists aren't going to be all that interested in uh, the question of, of, of Fatima to begin with. Uh, especially since the story is that, in fact, uh, the third secret predicted the disaster of Vatican II, and I, I believe Archbishop Lefevre told us an anecdote about that uh, as well. That uh, John the 23rd told him that um, he uh, read it, uh, read the third secret of Fatima, and then just sent it back to the archives because he figured that he, John the Twenty-Third, figured it would just simply upset people. Uh, he, so said, uh, that. he
3: said, it doesn't concern my reign. I remember that story. It doesn't ah, yes. concern my reign, that was his comment, to Archbishop Lefebvre. Yeah.
2: So uh, obviously uh, the modernists are not going to be too interested in it. Uh, It could very well have uh, predicted the situation that we're going through, so naturally we are interested in it. Uh, However, uh, what its contents are, uh, are not really uh, a key, I think, to what uh, we faithful Catholics are doing now, because as Archbishop Lefebvre also pointed out in the conference that um, uh, Fatima is a private revelation, And uh, as uh, as such, even a private revelation that has been approved by the Church, one does not have the obligation to uh, accept on divine faith that it's a question of of, of, uh, human faith. So from that point of view, it is not a, a key issue for us. But it would be very interesting to know what the Third Secret says.
3: Yes, and certainly what they revealed uh, and how they interpreted it was
1: absurd, at yes. least in my opinion. Right, uh, clearly a fabric- clearly a fabrication and not even a good one.
3: Yes, uh, you know, and and the interpretation didn't even fit, uh, and uh, so uh, you know, some bishop in white and so forth and dying, and uh, so uh, they uh, applied that to Jumple too, which was absolutely absurd. But just to go back, if we have a moment, uh, to Introduction to Christianity, 1968. This is page 349 of the Ignatius Press book, which I'm holding in my hand. This is what it reads, very short. It now also becomes clear that the real heart of the faith in the resurrection does not consist at all in the idea of the restoration of bodies to which we have reduced it in our thinking, such is the case even though this is the pictorial image image used throughout the Bible. He doesn't believe, Ratzinger does not believe, that there will be a restoration of our bodies at the end of the world. This is directly contrary to the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church as expressed in all of its creeds, and particularly and most explicitly in the Athanasian Creed. Now, I defy anyone to say that that man is a conservative or a Catholic for as long as that statement remains in that book and where it is not retracted.
1: Well, I would say probably, to your point, Your Excellency, you would say until the book is burned in public uh, with with music, probably.
3: Well, until – how do you call that man a Catholic? How do you call him a conservative when he doesn't believe the articles of the creed? My goodness, the articles of the Catholic creed. How do you call well, him a
1: conservative? I'd like to hear
3: somebody ex- tell me that.
1: Your Excellency, there's always going to be the comment that who are you to judge uh, this, this man and you don't have the authority to do so and the material formal question. So how, well, how do you respond to that? Well,
2: we, your what is clear your, is that he's is a the, public
1: heretic. The
2: the, uh, uh, reproach given to something like that is, well, how do you know what he really meant? How do you know what was in his head? So how many times have we heard that? Why don't you go ahead and answer that one for them? (laughs) Uh, You know, are we sure that he really meant that? Uh, Someone should have warned him about it. Yeah,
1: right, the, well this again, this is a novelty not only uh born of the fact that a lot of Catholics don't understand what the traditional um mode was for dealing with heresy and heretics, but because, you know, in, in, in modern times what really matters is your feelings, not what you say.
3: No, and in all law, including church law, when you commit a crime, you are supposed to be in your right mind and uh having full knowledge of what you do. It's something like being pulled over by the policeman. He doesn't come up to you and say, you really didn't mean to be speeding, did you? And you probably, your, your speedometer is probably broken, right? <laughs> no. He says, you are speeding, and here's a ticket. You have to talk your way out of it. You have to convince him that your speedometer was broken or that you were distracted or something. Is, you have to prove that you didn't know. Mm. But whenever a crime is committed, the the public authority always presumes that you were in your right mind and you had no ignorance about what you were doing. And that is the case of the church as well. Uh, you can, uh, Father Ciccata has an excellent article about that on the website, how the church regards the crime of heresy.
2: Mm. Well, well, the, um, what Bishop Sandborn said is, is uh, you know, absolutely true. And In the case of a cleric, the uh, authors say that sufficient knowledge of the faith is always presumed. And uh, when it comes to a clear statement, that you are presumed to know what the rule of faith is, but you're saying something contrary to it anyway. And here you have something like the statement about the resurrection of the dead in a book, Uh, which was reviewed many times, no doubt, by its author, before it was printed. It's, It's clear what he meant.
3: And are we supposed to believe that this Ratzinger, who was born in 1927, who went to catechism class in the 1930s, is ignorant of the teaching of the Catholic Church concerning the resurrection of the dead? That he never read the Catechism of the Council of Trent? That he never read his catechism, no one ever taught him his catechism, that he never saw the Athanasian Creed. Are people going to present this as an argument in favor of Ratzinger? I mean,
4: mm.
3: please stop us from laughing. It, yeah. is an, it is an absurd argument to say that this man is ignorant.
1: Uh, well, we have, uh, we have some calls, Your Excellency and Father. So the first one uh, we'll take is from Chris, who's calling from Minnesota. And his question sort of implied in some of the discussion we talked about earlier today, which is, is Vatican II stronger for the efforts? When I say stronger, let's say more influential. Was Vatican II stronger for uh, Cardinal Ratzinger's efforts? Chris, is that a fair uh, characterization of your question?
0: Uh, yes, definitely. I mean, he's. I would say that uh, it, it's, his state, it's his stated goal that uh, in in tandem uh, with John Paul II, you know, ever since the the two of them kind of ascended to their high office, that they first saw that had to admit that uh, there was now a problem with first of all the interpretation of Vatican II, and so that they so, saw it as their job to clarify that uh, what the interpretation of Vatican II was. And then to uh, get it implemented and accepted by all, you know, the entire uh, church. So I would, I would, I would ask you, uh, gentlemen, if uh, you would feel that that uh, the, the establishment of uh, the Vatican II religion is now stronger or or weaker as a result of uh, uh, Ratzinger's tenure, both in the CDF and uh, uh, as, as Pope.
3: Absolutely, yes. Uh, I would compare John and Paul to Robespierre in the in the French Revolution and then john <laughs> paul and and Ratzinger to napoleon uh, it 's very comparable in the French Revolution. You had this big outburst of radicalism, and it would have failed uh, politically if there had not been a Napoleon to take it and spread it all over Europe. And to establish all of the European countries with with the new institutions of liberalism and democracy and all of these things that were anathema before the French Revolution, uh, the uh, that's uh, John Paul II in union with Ratzinger and really Ratzinger is just an extension of his reign. Uh, the uh, ha- did that they they established it they they soaked the Catholics in this uh, like a marinade. And and then at the same time presenting themselves as conservatives and as as holding on to tradition, they did a wonderful job of that. Just a wonderful job, and uh, that is certainly the legacy of the uh, of what has happened since 1978 to this day uh, is the establishment of Vatican II. So uh, I I think that uh, you know to that
2: question the answer is yes, absolutely. Uh, I would say the same thing you see how the the doctrines of Vatican II and the theological mindset of Vatican II has been, uh, for want of a better word, systematized and kind of put together in their new catechism. And this is supposed to be the uh, touchstone for uh, their new world order. And all of it, of course, is uh, based on Vatican II. uh, So they've they've, uh, uh, solidified it and then made the attempt to um, offer an apologetic for it by uh, claiming that it is uh, continuous, that Vatican II is continuous with what came in the past. And Ratzinger uh, himself was the man who came up with the phrase the hermeneutic of continuity. And in, in uh, that idea is... Uh, uh, the, the, the uh, buzzword for trying to show the legitimacy and uh, the permanence of this uh, revolution when Paul VI died
3: in 1978 there was still time to reverse things as a matter of fact Cardinal Seary was supposed to pass as the the candidate of those who wanted to reverse things and the night before the liberals who were divided between two liberal candidates Went and got the votes for Voitiwa as their liberal candidate, and he he uh, outvoted, uh, or his candidacy outvoted uh, that of Siri, and that's where really the turning point came. And and John Paul had a very very long time as being a modernist inmate of the Vatican, as I call them. Uh, and uh, he he did all of those things: a new code of canon law, many many documents, and appointments of bishops who were appalling, as, as we know. Uh, and uh, and the damage is done. Uh, I mean, but the you know the damage is done in in more ways than one. You can see the condition, uh, as Cardinal Martini said, we have these tremendous churches, but there are nobody and
1: nobody is in them. Mm. Chris, Chris, does that answer your question?
0: Uh, yes, definitely.
1: All right, well, thanks for your Thank call. You. Thank,
0: Thank you. Thank
1: you. Our next question is is from Henry from Georgia, and he wanted to ask a, uh, another question about, uh, about the trope of Fatima that we had discussed. Henry, go ahead.
4: Good morning, Your Excellency, Father Stephen. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Yes. Yeah, it was funny you mentioned Fatima because I had wrote down there was something it's in the back of my mind that either Sister Lucia or, or the Blessed Virgin commented about 1960 being, being a, a critical year or something about clarity, and, and it just seems like 1960, you know, what was happening in our country, what was about to happen in, in the church, it just seemed that that, was, that year had something to do with it. That was one question. The, the other question is, is there anything that we can do, we traditionalists, can do, besides pray, to combat the ignorance, especially of journalists. For example, I just read an article from Christiana Amanapur, quote, Benedict resisted the forces of modernity, unquote. I mean, how how (laughs) ignorant is that? And is there anything we can do other than pray to to combat this stuff? Thank you.
2: I don't think there's anything that could be done for Christina. (laughs) I I don't think there's anything you can do for a journalist. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Uh, uh, But, yes, uh, 1960 was the year in which all hell broke loose, not only in the church, but also in society, customs, uh, politics as well, but uh, particularly the customs and morals of people and their attitudes. Mm -hmm. It was like the opening of the bottomless pit uh... in the apocalypse uh, all hell broke loose and, and life was totally altered at that point so yes, i agree with that uh, but uh... you know as far as uh... what traditionalists should do uh... we have the means to survive we don't have the means to change the, the the problem in the church to to do anything great to turn it around we don't have those means only god will do that in his good time and way but we do have the ability to survive and, and as much as we can to get the word out, and that's what you should do.
1: Wow. Okay. Yes. Henry, is there anything else you'd like to ask?
4: Well, I, I don't have a question, but I do have a comment. It, it just seems like there is a, so much similarity between the modernists at Vatican II the, and the liberal progressives in our own country. For example, mm-hmm. when John the Twenty Third changed the vote from two-thirds majority to a simple majority. It, it kind of reminds me of the Democrats changing the votes in the Senate to get Obamacare passed. They just change the rules for, to, to meet whatever they want. It's, it's kind of very similar to what's what's happening here in, in our country.
3: Uh, in general,
4: there is no form of government or form of administration
3: which will resist the evil intentions of those who are in
1: charge. Yes. Well, Henry, thanks hey. for your
4: call. Okay. Thank you. Well, thank you.
1: Uh, Again, for those of you who are interested in calling And asking our crack clergy Your question Our telephone number (laughs) 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 Our uh, telephone number is 949-272-9417 Again, that's 949-272-9417 If you're joining us in progress You're listening to Restoration Radio I'm your host, Stephen Heiner I'm uh, today with his Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Father Anthony Chicata, we're discussing the years 1960 through 2005 for one Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger. One of the things that happened during this time period to Your Excellency and Father, we have, I mentioned earlier, the Joint Declaration on Justification and Dominus Jesus. Now, it's said that the Joint Declaration on Justification is not a magisterial document. So it's not anything we really have to worry about, and it doesn't speak to the illegitimacy of the current Vatican II, Novus Ordo sect. How would you comment in response to that?
3: Well, it doesn't have to be a magisterial document. Uh, Introduction to Christianity is not a magisterial document, but it is a publication of heresy. And so is the... Uh, is the uh, joint declaration a a public espousal of heresy in which the Council of Trent was destroyed just uh just uh, all of the the dec- uh, all of the declarations concerning justification were 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 put aside and destroyed and contradicted uh it 's a a heretical document, and Ratzinger had a lot to do with it he 's the one that that i uh, That really saved it and and put it together um, and uh, it is it is loaded with with problems I mean it would take a whole interview just to go through that uh, that uh, document again that appears on father uh, um, um website if I did an article on it if anybody wants
2: to check it's, it it 's it's called a critical analysis of the joint declaration. Of the doctrine of justification on on the doctrine of justification. Yes, and you'll find it in the heresy and errors section of the article page, articles page of traditionalmass.org. So uh, you know that that is another.
3: There, there is a a fallacy that uh, that uh, that unless they say their heresy in the context of. Magisterium that they're off the hook that it's okay to be a public heretic uh, uh, that this is compatible with Catholicism and it isn't, it's not compatible with Catholicism or with canon law it, it violates both uh, if you are a public heretic you overcome the effect of your baptism whereby you are a member of the Catholic Church because the profession of faith was the condition upon which the priest would pour the water over your head. And if you abandon the faith publicly, you sever yourself from the Catholic Church, whether or not the law catches up to you or not. If if a man murders his wife, he's a murderer long before the law catches up to him. He's innocent uh, before the law. But in reality, he's a murderer. And so also a heretic who, uh, with whom the law has not caught up is in fact a heretic, and all of the effects of his heresy are in place. That is, separation from the Catholic Church. Even if it has not been done legally by excommunication, there is nevertheless a true and real separation from the Catholic Church. Uh, Cardinal Biot pointed that out, that before the Council of Nicaea, that the Arians were considered to be heretics, even though there was no magisterial statement that Christ was God, in the sense that, besides the ordinary universal magisterium, that is the common teaching of the Catholic Church, there was no solemn magisterium that Christ was God. But they were considered heretics because they publicly denied the common teaching of the Catholic Church. And the same is true of these people just like Ratzinger denying in his book the creed of of the Catholic Church uh he becomes a public heretic and the society of Saint Pius X has put forward the idea that he, that he has to in order to qualify as a non-pope he has to solemnly define a heresy this is not true no they 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 claim that ordinary mu- uh, universal magisterium is is something that uh, it can tolerate here and there some error, but in the long run uh, corrects itself that's their idea of that and so that, that there should be ordinary universal magisterium that Ratzinger might put out that is even heretical, doesn't really uh, destroy the fabric of the whole thing but this only, is against the only way he would qualify true Pope is Pope if can't... he teaches
1: it, and that's not true well, and, and uh, a true Pope can't, by definition, issue heresy. Uh He's Correct. protected from the Holy <laughs> Ghost from doing that, so...
3: Yes, well, uh, there would be... Uh, an. Inf- well, that's r- the reason why we're Sede is because it's an infallible sign, even at Vatican II. It's a sign, it's like a red light on your dashboard, that something is wrong, that someone who ought to be assisted by the Holy Ghost is not. not. <laughs> right? And therefore, I mean, for whatever reason it is, but there's an infallible sign that there's something deeply wrong. And, uh, and therefore, we have to work back and say these people, for whatever reason, were not, in fact,
2: true popes. <laughs> but one could say, I guess, that it's the uh, effects of the act, or the effects of the, the sin of heresy uh, that you see. And what Bishop Sanborn was talking about uh, earlier uh, with regard to heresy was the difference uh, between uh, a uh, a sin that has certain effects as regards taking you out of the church and uh, a crime, which is the operation of of, uh, uh, church law. You're being uh, convicted of the sin, in effect, in an official way but that's all it is the reality uh, exists and the reality has uh, these effects
3: i'll give you an example if your next-door neighbor was known with certitude to be a child molester and murderer would you say well he hasn't been convicted in court so i'll send my kids over <laughs> of course think... not the the effect of his crime already uh, takes place by the mere knowledge
1: of it mm. Well, we're going to return back to a point you made earlier about there being no such thing as liberal or conservative, truly, within the Catholic worldview. And John, who's calling us from Wisconsin, um, makes is asking the question, was St. Pius X, would he be considered a liberal because he was trying to uh, bring about uh, daily communion? Uh, John, is that a fair characterization of your question?
4: Yes. And then I also wanted to ask if, uh, and by the way, good day to you, Your Excellency, and Father Jakarta and Stephen. Um, I wanted to ask if um, you had used earlier the term invisible church. Now, is that Vatican II speaking? Are they supposed to be referring to the mystical body of Christ when they use that term?
3: I'll answer that. Uh, The answer is yes. Yes, the the idea is that there are invisible, that there are only invisible bonds. Now, the, the Catholic Church says that there are invisible bonds. There, is, there are, you know, this grace and, and uh, various other you know, supernatural and invisible aspects of the Church, but that these things are in the Church and of the Church, That they, the, and by the Church I mean the structure of the Catholic Church. What what the modernists want to do is make the structure of the Catholic Church something accidental to the real Church of Christ, which is bound together only by invisible bonds. So that that's the difference. The Catholic Church is not merely an organization; it has some very supernatural bonds in it. But
2: you know, the separation of them is the problem.
4: Thank you. As regards the question
2: of of the reception of first communion. Uh, how one would characterize that uh, is simply this it's a, a question of uh, church discipline and if you look at the history of uh, the reception of uh, holy communion uh in uh, the catholic church you see that at different periods there were different disciplinary practices for different reasons and um, so for instance in the uh, in the eastern rite a uh, child who is, is uh, baptized will receive the Sacrament of, of Confirmation right away, and then uh, will uh, be given the precious blood. So there's uh, diversity for different reasons in, in uh, discipline. Pius tenth, St. Pius X, uh, decided that uh, in uh, our own time, it would be very good for little children, to uh, receive our lord's body and blood so he changed the discipline there and that's all it's it's not a question of, of uh, uh, liberal or conservative yes he also uh... uh...
3: promoted the frequent communion too and uh... and again it really is neither liberal or conservative it's just a pastoral change that that really uh, you know you could say well it's prudent or imprudent but it has really nothing to do with modernism or anything like that. It's just whether you agree with it or not. And just as a footnote, on the frequent communion,
4: uh,
3: it was the one place in which he and Cardinal Mary DelVal disagreed. Cardinal Mary DelVal said this is a mistake, that this will lead to the abuse of the, of the Blessed Sacrament, and Bice ignored him and put it through anyway. So that, that's just a little footnote to that.
4: That's new. Thank you very much, both, yeah. all, all of you. Thank you. Thanks, John.
1: Well, I mean, to His Excellency's point, I mean, good men can certainly disagree on on uh, items like that, as I'm sure you and uh, Your Excellency, when Father Chicotta visits you, you might have a spirited discussion about some theological point. Oh, um, <laughs> Every now and then. He um, doesn't know enough to have a discussion.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'll, I'll get you for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you were talking about Benedict the Fifteenth, uh, the story is that Cardinal Mary Delval led the group against uh, Benedict the Fifteenth in the conclave, yeah. and that there was this this famous story that, uh, as as Cardinal as Cardinal Mary Delval uh, came up to give his obeisance to the new pope, um, Benedict Fifteenth leaned forward and said, "The stone that has been rejected uh, has become the cornerstone."
3: Yes, and Mary Delval, being the extremely intelligent and quick mind that he was, responded with the second part of that verse of the psalm, which was, "And it is wondrous in our eyes." <laughs> and uh, uh, because Mary Delval had opposed his candidacy for cardinal, that's that's why mm. you should understand that. Pius X absolutely wanted Cardinal della Chiesa, who was later Benedict the Fifteenth, to be cardinal. But he was known as a liberal. He was known as a, a modernizer. And Pius the, uh, Mary Valle said, "No, don't make him a cardinal. You'll put him right on the track to the papacy." And I think it's the greatest mystery of Pius X's reign: why he made Deliciès a cardinal. Uh, we don't know, but he did.
4: <laughs>
1: the greatest. Maybe in the, my- maybe in the mysteries of politics, you have this idea that you know sometimes you you have to. Give a little bit uh, so that, you know, you don't completely drive your enemies to despair and more desperate moves.
3: Pius X didn't know the meaning of the word compromise, and if you uh, said that to him, he wouldn't know what language you were speaking. That's why it's so mysterious. Uh, I mean, he's the one that said uh, modernists should be beaten with fists.
1: Well, mysterious mystery, go back to Vatican II speak, you know, the church as mystery uh... we we talked about the joint declaration of justification but now we have to get to that that new the new modern syllabus known as dominus jesus which was one of uh... one of the ratzinger creations i think this was in two thousand um, and uh, the wanderer of course thought that it was a, a great a show of doctrine but um... as usual your excellency you you didn't agree with the wanderer
3: no uh, I. The wonder occasionally has some good articles, but most of the time I use it to wash the windows of my car. Uh, and, I, you know, I don't mean that in a – it sounds pretty nasty, I guess. But the, the, their, their basic idea is no matter what comes out of the Vatican, no matter what, it could be the most horrid thing that happens, everything's okay. And everything's orthodox. And there's nothing to worry about, and it's all glossed over, and I've just seen that over the years. Uh, but they occasionally say some good things, uh, and I, I get to wonder all the time. But, uh, the, um, yes, the, the, the big display uh, of orthodoxy, quote-unquote, was that the Protestant churches were told that they are not really churches, but only ecclesial communities because they don't have a valid priesthood. And this was, you know, like a, 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 a jab in the heart to the Protestants. Oh, how
4: could you say such a thing? And this
3: was, for the conservatives, you know, a, a sign to, to wave the flag and say he has defended Catholic doctrine. It's just a lot of baloney. The, the reason why he said that was because in his notion of the church as communion, you have to have a valid Eucharist in order to uh, have communion. <laughs> you see, in other words, in order to be church, I should say, and, and uh, a legitimate particular church, you have to have a valid Eucharist, and you have to have a valid hierarchy. Uh, and that, So the schismatics, who are as much outside the church as the Pentecostalists and, and anybody else, that is non-Catholic, and the Anglicans—they are as much outside the church, cut off just as much. They are withered branches on the ground. They, in Ratzinger's view, are particular churches. That means that they are have the same status as a Catholic diocese, which was the the uh, the older term for a particular, or you know, another term for a particular church. That means like the, the, the church of, of wherever you are, the church of New York. or That was a particular church within the Catholic structure. Well, he has, he, in, that, in that document, he called them particular churches, and he said when the, they celebrate the Eucharist, the church of Christ, the, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church of Christ, is realized in all of its fullness. So this is this Eucharistic uh, ecclesiology that was developed by that de creature creature uh, mm-hmm. in the early 1950s, that uh, wherever the Eucharist is validly ce- celebrated, there you have the Church. Why? Because the Church comes out of the Christian piety. It is an effect of the Christian piety. So if you have the presence of Christ, among people, they are church at that point. You see, then everything is right for being church. Uh, and it's just a, an unfortunate circumstance that, well, yes, the schismatics are not subject to Rome, uh, but, you know, uh, that doesn't prevent them from being particular churches. That means that he took out of the essence of being part of the Church of Christ and being attached to Christ, he took out the papacy, and submission to the Roman Pontiff as a, a necessary condition of being part of the Church of Christ—that is a heresy. So that document is heretical for that
1: reason. You, uh, I think that's a great point, Your yeah, Excellency. I was going to ask <laughs> Father if he had anything to I, I to add to I that.
3: I
4: you.
3: <laughs> you thought I was too negative.
4: <laughs> <laughs> you, Your Excellency,
1: you're you too You do negative? have that
2: tendency. <laughs> No, uh, that's exactly the point. It's, we're we're back to the church issue again, and this is how um, uh, this is what uh, the modernists have done to uh, to accommodate ecumenism, is that they have uh, created this this. Um, Uh, different idea of the Church, which uh, I think I call Franken-Church, that it's it's all of these these, uh, uh, different and and, uh, separate parts that are somehow uh, put together by invisible bonds. But it uh, occurred to me as you you were talking, Your Excellency, that when uh, the idea of valid orders and of the uh, Eucharist uh, making the church present in all of these different bodies, along around the same time you had uh, another declaration from the Vatican about the um, uh, about the Nestorian Church, uh, which did not have the um, uh, words of, of consecration oh, yes. in uh, in the canon of the Mass, and uh, the Vatican, at the, about the same time as Dominus Jesus issued a declaration saying that this is, this is okay as well. Uh, one of the consequences of this particular document, uh, as someone pointed out, is, uh, would be to allow eventually for uh, Lutheran churches, let us say, to be considered to have uh, some sort of a proper apostolic succession. That the, uh, because it does away with, with the idea in the sacrament of an essential sacramental form. Yes. You see, many Lutherans have retained an episcopacy of sorts. You
3: know, they have Lutheran bishops. Uh, they come and do confirmations. And the Anglicans have retained an episcopacy of sorts and actually have succeeded to the traditional episcopal sees in England and so forth. And so they're all set. If they can come up with a theology whereby these people have valid orders, then they have valid Eucharist, then they have a hierarchy, they're all set. Then they're then they're part of the Church of Christ, and their churches, and their particular churches. And they're not far from that. the the uh, the the idea of matter and form, the traditional teaching of the Catholic Church concerning validity of sacraments has been thrown out by the modernists. For them, as long as you have a a Christian rite in which there is an intention to do something, like to make the Eucharist or to make a bishop or a priest, and you you put it in the context of a Christian rite, uh, you're good. You're good to go. Uh, that's a valid uh, valid sacrament. So they in this next papacy, quote unquote, you could possibly see something like that where they will approve of Anglican orders. Uh, it, with uh, that kind of theology
2: already at the time that uh, the second document we're talking about came out, uh, there were people who um pointed that out right away that this would be a wedge precisely to do that, to do that to recognize the uh, episcopal orders of Lutherans and Anglicans yes, yes. it's uh, that that right of the
3: Nestorians simply makes a vague reference. To the Last Supper, it, it it says Christ, you know, did the Last Supper. That's all you get in it. <laughs> I, I looked at the texts, and the reason that they did away with it was because this, they are Nestorians. That is, they believe that Christ is two persons, and therefore that his human flesh is not adorable. And therefore, the idea of a blessed sacrament, which is the body of Christ, the adorable body of Christ, sort of loses its impact in such a theology.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: And so they got rid of the words of consecration and the adoration of the Holy Eucharist.
2: The people who think we're making this up can find another article on this, (laughs) uh, uh, on uh, traditionalmass.org. And the article is, Sacrament Unholy also by uh, Bishop Sanborn. And
1: we'll try to get a link to that up on Twitter. Um, I have the links up to the other articles that um, we've been referring to today. For those of you who are just joining us, uh, you're listening to Restoration Radio. Today our topic is on the legacy of Cardinal Ratzinger, um, also known as Benedict XVI, during the years of 1960 to 2005. And there's still a few things that we want to cover. However... In a In a sort of summary form, one of our callers has asked uh, what um if if we could get a, a highlight what would be let's say the top three heresies we're looking at from this time period uh Ma- magdalene from from florida is that is that a fair characterization of your question
3: uh, yes, hello your Excellency hello. And yes, hello. Um, yeah, I realize you've covered quite a few
1: heresies of the 15th so far. <laughs> Uh, but I was just wondering if you could point to, say, three of the, the most obvious ones, the most glaring that, you know, as as Catholics, we have to try to combat it in, in regular speech with people. And um, we could just say, you know, well, if you look at this document, this document, this document. It shows three, these three different heresies, and, and you know, there's really, it's indisputable. I'm going to go off air because I don't want my kids screaming in the background. <laughs>
2: Uh, Thanks for I your guess follow-up. the child is is a good traditional Catholic who'd be offended by the sound of heresies <laughs> um, <laughs> if we were to mention them. I uh, I'm sure Bishop San- Sanborn would agree with me that the overriding one really is the uh, his understanding of the Church. Yeah. But that that is, is is so changed uh, that is so changed that is unrecognizable from what is traditionally understood. Uh, the nature of the church to be uh, when when you uh, profess in the creed, you know, I believe in one church, that has has a uh, certain meaning, and he has uh, with a the new theology utterly changed that. Yes, it's a substantial alteration of the faith. It is heretical.
3: Uh, I would say, you know, pulling out his book from 1968 uh, and showing somebody on page 349 a glaring heresy against the the resurrection of the dead is it would be should be convincing to anybody i mean he could not have been more
4: explicit
3: uh, so you know if somebody says well you uh, know i don't accept that or you know then there's there's no possible there's nothing else to say but that should if he if that person has the catholic faith that should alarm him deeply that a person in that position should say such a thing and never retract it uh number three uh, there's a lot i mean that the joint declaration uh is so full of heresy it's one after the other uh loaded with heresy uh on justification um and and the you know, those are defined dogmas by the catholic church uh it's very very clear um Let's see the uh, uh, so, so many uh, the um, number three. Uh, well, all of the heresies of Vatican II you can put on him, uh, especially religious liberty. I mean, he, he promotes Vatican II as being something that is that is uh, legitimate, and he maintains the uh, the modernist interpretation of Vatican II against SSPX. Which is saying we want to put a a traditional interpretation you know as if that were possible, but at least they're saying we want to interpret this in accordance with the traditional teaching. He has rejected that, and so he he has he has uh retained the teaching uh of the modernists the the, the which is the true teaching of Vatican II, so I would put all of
2: Vatican II upon him too uh,
3: the, all the heretical teachings of Vatican II.
2: One one of, of the things that is important to understand is when, when it comes to heresy or denial of uh, the article, uh, say an article of the creed, I believe in one church, that uh, if you ask a modernist heretic, well, do you believe in one church? Of course he's going to say yes. But uh, his understanding and his explanation of that is a... Um, is a different understanding a different sense, a different explanation of that from what the church always had so his the the um, uh, denial uh, of that comes about by uh, adhering to a completely under different understanding of what the church meant by that, and that is a typically modernist thing to do is to accept
3: all of the Dogmas at face value, but to empty out their meanings and alter their
4: meanings—that
3: is typically modernist. So they can uh, recite the credo along with you, but have a totally I- different idea of it.
1: Yes. Well, I think to your earthly and father, you're going to have. My, you know, again, the wanderer crowd is going to say, well, yeah, but he wrote that book in 1968. You can't really make him, you know, that was a long time ago. In modern political parlance, like, well, you know, I was I was younger. You know, I had different views back then. And and you pointed out when we talked about this in the pre-show, you, you, and you pointed this out in our last show when we talked about the resignation announcement, that he has a very jeune, regrettriant idea of who he is. He says that he hasn't changed.
3: Yes, 2003. Right? That everyone else has changed. That's what he said explicitly, that he never changed. It was in an interview in 2003. You can find it on the Internet. Uh, that uh, everyone else changed, he said, but but he has remained the same. So he doesn't, re- you know, je ne regrette rien. He did Piaf. And yeah. uh, uh, he has, uh, and by the way, heresy does not have a shelf life either. <laughs> uh, the the uh, you know uh, it doesn't sort of expire. Uh, They're sort of like Twinkies. And you know yeah. that book was republished. I mean, it isn't as though it's some sort of dead thing that we dug out of a, a dusty library. It was republished uh, and again and again reprinted and, and promulgated all over the place uh, and and. Uh, propounded and 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 what not i mean this is this is Ratzinger doctrine he adheres to these things and, and there was no attempt to redact it in such a way that those things were were uh, expunged not at all uh so i mean it it's it six there is also the business the a moral heresy of the the use of condoms which is uh heretical because it is contrary to uh the teaching by Kastikanubi that artificial birth control is immoral. And uh and you know, but of course the, the, the way the Wanderer handled that was somebody wrote an article saying that, well, the uh the prohibition against using artificial birth control applies only to marriage. It does not apply outside of marriage. <laughs> I couldn't believe it when I read it. I just could not believe it. I mean, I practically fell off the chair when I read it, that, that he's okay because this refers to prostitutes. It's only in marriage that you have to observe
1: those things. Oh. The, the modern sport of defending the post-conciliar candidate, uh, claimant to the papacy. Well, I'm glad I opted out of that a long time ago. I just don't have the fitness for it.
3: Well, I think even for the wanderer, that was a jolt.
4: <laughs> yes, yeah
1: well one of the last things that in our timeline actually we talked about uh, up to 2005 um, we also talked about this in our last show the resignation uh, show so I, we don't need to talk about it too much but if you'd like to reprise the idea of limbo and what happened to that teaching um, or what, what, what Cardinal Ratzinger would like to see happen to that teaching
3: well he trashed limbo uh, he, he said it doesn't exist and uh, uh which uh, involves uh, you know a number of problems for babies uh and again i have another article i think it's on on Father's site uh the what happens to babies who die without baptism uh if there's no limbo the reason why theologians said there's a limbo that is something between the hell of torment and heaven where uh, it's because babies who die without baptism should not obviously go to heaven, and they should not be detained in the hell of torment. So if you do away with limbo, what happens to those babies? Now, before we answer that question, I'll give you St. Augustine's answer. He says, Wherefore, whosoever tells us that any man can be made alive in the resurrection of the dead, otherwise than in Christ, he is to be detested as a pestilent enemy, ...to the common faith. Likewise, whosoever says that those children who depart out of this life without partaking of that sacrament shall be made alive in Christ certainly contradicts the apostolic declaration and condemns the universal church in which it is the practice to lose no time and run in haste to administer administer baptism to infant children because it is believed as an indubitable truth that otherwise they cannot be made alive in Christ. That's St. Augustine on what happens yeah. to unbaptized babies. So where, where do Ratzinger's unbaptized babies go? I can't see Ratzinger saying that they are tormented in hell.
4: Mm.
3: So he must be among those who, are, who condemn the universal church and contradict the apostolic declaration.
1: Well, I think that John Paul II made some allusion to this. I don't know if it was in Crossing Threshold of Hope, but I think his his concept is that aborted babies go to heaven, which, I mean, would lead to the logical conclusion that we should be encouraging abortions, not excommunicating people, because they're creating a huge yeah. new communion yeah. of saints.
3: Yes. Uh, by the um, way, that was St. Saint, Saint Augustine in his letter 166, if anyone wants to, to look that up. Uh, commenting on that and that's very important because he says he condemns the universal church that means St. Augustine is attesting to the fact that this is the belief of the universal church now that's a very important testimony from you know, one of the greatest doctors of the
2: church that, that this is not his theological belief or some sort it's of conclusion a that he's come uh... to Witness to universal ordinary magisterium, right? Yes, he says he
4: mm. certainly
2: contradicts the apostolic declaration
3: and condemns the universal church. Now that's very strong from Saint Augustine. Uh, well,
1: I'm sorry, you're thinking. No,
3: ahead. no. So uh, that, that's uh, that's important. So I mean, th- to say that there's no limbo, while he escapes the accusation of heresy because limbo is not taught as as Catholic doctrine, he can't uh, escape the accusation of heresy if he says that those unbaptized babies go to heaven. Then he's in heresy. Hmm. Now, in that, I don't think he addressed it. But, of course, everyone knows, which is typical of the modernist, is that he lets things slide into your mind without actually
2: saying them.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm.
2: Typical of modernism. The article, by the way, is called Damning Limbo to Hell. It's
1: also we have on, a, the, uh, on the TraditionalMass.org traditional site. Father Scott has been our faithful secretary today, making notes of those. Uh, those of you who haven't been to TraditionalMass.org, um, it was where I started to encounter a lot of these arguments for the first time, simply because the, the recognize and resist, you could say the SSPX crowd um, that I was a, a part of for a long time, did not really want to get into these issues. Uh, there wasn't a, a thoughtful or ex, uh, thoughtful exploration of Vatican II. There wasn't a, a tr- an attempt to explain the ecclesiology of, of the crisis. And traditionalmass.org has a lot of these articles. And it's by no means a comprehensive look, but it does encounter a lot of these issues, Uh, that uh, people have never, frankly, explored. We've got a little bit of time left, uh, Your Excellency and Father. Um, A couple things I'd like to talk about. One is the 2001 Jewish people and their sacred scriptures in the Christian Bible um, work that was put out by the Pontifical Biblical Commission with a preface by Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger. And, of course, this being a very long modern Vatican document and most... 99% of traditionalists having not read this Can you give us a reader's digest um, Either Father or Your Excellency On on this document and what it means
3: Yes, the the salient point in it Is that uh, one should not make an attempt to convert Jews And that the Jews have a separate path To heaven apart from the Catholic Church that the, uh, the Christian faith we will say, in, in the proper sense of the term, that they still their covenant with God is still good, that they don't need to accept Christ the Savior and Messiah in order to be saved, that they have their own path to salvation. That that's the essence of of that document. It was an appalling document because in, in itself it's apostatical. See, to say that there is there is a Savior or you can be saved outside of Christ is an apostasy mm. uh and uh yet you know that that came out, and nobody blinked an eye uh and uh but it it is uh, and you know it, it in various other statements of of Ratzinger and John Paul, too as well uh, uh have corroborated that and, and also uh, the heteropraxis of participating in their rights and uh uh, I think he said to uh, when he went to a Jewish synagogue that uh, we hope that God helps you to continue your mission. I mean, what mission is there outside of Christ? Uh, how do you have a mission? Mission from whom? Uh, there is this idea that uh, the and also he said that the Jews do not await the Messiah in vain. Now, you know these are all statements of Ratzinger. So I'm just putting it all in context. Uh, he has this idea that uh... now I was, It's funny. It just as again a footnote to this. I was in a bookstore, a Catholic bookstore in Paris, not too long ago, and uh, I I saw the scripture section, and usually you know you would see New Testament and Old Testament, and the uh, the way it um, read the the sections instead of old and new, it said First Testament, Second Testament. Oh. Hmm. Uh, and I noticed that, and I thought, well, there, there, there it is. Uh, that that the first testament is still around, and there's a second testament uh, for the Gentiles or something. And and uh, and uh, so he uh, Ratzinger has this idea that they are somehow exempt from the first coming of Christ, but they'll get on the bandwagon, so to speak, at the second coming of Christ. If you read, you know, things that he has said, that prayer that he put in the the sixty through missile for Good Friday expresses that. I don't know if the SSPX, out of obedience to
1: the Holy Father, uses that on on Good Friday. It would be interesting to see what they do. Well, you know, he's only the Holy Father when he doesn't disagree with that. That's right. Yes,
3: he's he's only uh, he's he's always right unless he's wrong.
4: <laughs> uh,
1: you're, you're, we're sort of uh, setting the stage, obviously, as, uh, as the claimant, Benedict XVI, uh, Ratzinger entered a synagogue to pray with the Jews. And at the end of that service, there was a song, a hymn sung for the coming of the Messiah. And Benedict was photographed bowing his head during the song. So there's obviously actions that would, would play out in the, in the non-pontificate that we would have ahead of us. One, one more thing I want to talk about that will kind of set our stage to, for our next show, part two, the 2005 through 2003, 2006 through 2013 timeline for uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, is CC, And this goes back again to the idea of traditionalists holding on to their gossip, So this idea that Colonel Ratzinger was opposed in pectore to Assisi, but uh, he didn't stop it. And yet, if this were really true, we wouldn't have seen that he actually participated in his own uh, version of this event uh, during his own non-pontificate. So do you, Father or, or Your Excellency, do you have any comments on the 1986 Assisi event and... Uh, what Ratzinger's role or non-role in this, what does it imply, what did it mean?
3: Well, I mean, as far as 1986, it's the abomination of desolation in the holy place.
1: Uh, That's the only way you could describe
3: it. And uh, Ratzinger was not there, and there was this idea that he was staying away because he didn't really agree with it. But we know that's not true because he praised the spirit of Assisi when he inaugurated the one that happened in, I believe, 2011, and the 25th, uh, 25th anniversary of it. So uh, and he, at other points, he praised the, the spirit of Assisi. So, uh, he must have had a cold or something like that uh, for staying away. Uh, I don't think it was anything theological. But that that uh, that requires uh, yes a whole other show to, <laughs> to deal with that. But uh, the uh, certainly uh, all of his principles agree with that. All of his principles of ecclesiology and and. Uh, uh, his principles of finding God uh, by, uh, you know, in yourself, uh, which is very clear in his uh, introduction to Christianity, uh, where where man makes an approach to God by in discovering the absolute in himself, which is practically straight out of Pashendi, which is the document of Pius X, which condemned modernism. Uh, it, it is practically word for word, it, it's as if he went and copied it. Uh, that you know, it's pure modernism. Uh, that uh, so, therefore, you know, when people uh, worship a Buddha, or they uh, at uh, one of them, yes, that was eighty. No, it's one of them. They had the worship of fire, uh, which was the original idolatry uh, that is mentioned uh, in uh, the city of Ur. Uh, that uh, Abraham was drawn away from by the command of God, so the, they had the worship of fire, they had to do it out in the courtyard because obviously it was a little bit uh dangerous to do it in the basement of the basilica uh, and uh but all sorts of uh evil uh forms of of uh worship were taking place there, but that 's all you know, it 's all in accordance with their theology. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, uh, Your Excellency Father, thank you. Uh, time has sort of flown by. We're at the end of our show. And uh, for those of you who are joining us now at the very end of our show, don't worry. B, as When the show wraps, uh, the stream will be collected into a podcast that you can download so you can start the show over from the beginning and get what you missed. Uh, this has been Restoration Radio, and we've been talking today about the legacy of Joseph Ratzinger from 1960 to 2005. Our next show on this topic, Part 2, uh, is going to be next week uh, in the United States time will be February the 27th at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And we're going to be talking about the years 2005 through, you could say, the beginning of 2013 up till, uh because that will be the day before the resignation and when the entire world will be set of a contest uh, for at least a at least a period of time. I guess there will be a a period of peace, a period of time. Uh, And our guest today uh, will be the same uh, on that show as well. We'll have His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, who's rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary. For those of you who are grateful to hear a Catholic bishop talk in a Catholic manner with fellow Catholics, um, let your gratitude be known either by thank-you notes or thank-you notes Um, which have monetary contributions to His Excellency. uh, The seminary address is Most Holy Trinity Seminary, 1000 Spring Lake Highway, Brooksville, Florida 34602. Again, that's 1000 Spring Lake Highway, Brooksville, Florida 34602. And as I've said before, no contribution is too large. (laughs) <laughs> um, Father Chikata, uh is at St. Gertrude the Great. His address is 4900 Rialto Road, R-I-A-L-T-O Road, that's in West Chester, Ohio 45069. As I said at the top of the show, Father has a new website today that's out called sggresources.org and has links to all sorts of resources, including His Excellency Seminary and some other media and books, which uh, you should explore and learn about so that you can have a better understanding of some of the things that we're talking about on the show. Um, Restoration Radio is a production of True Restoration Media which sponsors the show. Uh, if you'd like to know more about what we do, uh, you can find us at truerestorationmedia.com and my writing, Stephen Heiner, at truerestoration.blogspot.com. We hope you'll join us next week. Uh, your Excellency and Father, thank you for your time. And thank we you, will, uh, Thank you. We will close you, uh, close out the show with the be- uh, how, we, how we started the beginning with a cut from Palestrina's two ace Petrus.